If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. I want to talk to you today about why do you call him Lord? Why do you call him Lord? Luke 6, beginning at verse 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth doeth not. Is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. We'll stop there at verse 49 of Luke chapter 6. Why do you call him Lord? To put it very succinctly, Jesus is saying something very simple here. Do what I say to do and you'll make it. Only hear what I say, read what I say, and don't do it, and you won't make it. Which means that there will be professing Christians with Bibles in their hands and church attendance under their belt and prayers uttered from their lips to whom Jesus will say, and we'll see this in just a moment, I never knew you. We use the expression going to church, keeping in mind that we don't go to church. We are the church wherever we go. But it's just an expression that we use. And again, to put it in a very succinct fashion, Jesus is saying here, and we read this in Matthew 7, we'll see it again. In that day, he says, many shall come unto me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? This is speaking of Christianity. And again, Jesus states, then I will say unto them, I never knew you. And so we come to this very simple principle. You do what Jesus says to do, and it will be all right. You do not do what Jesus said to do, and you know what he said to do. It's not going to be all right. How many funerals have I done over the years? Many, many, many. For a professing Christian, which nobody did know, nor will they ever know, that in my mind there was doubts about where this person actually is in eternity. Why? I base it on this text here. You know, when you pastor people, It is very much like being a father. You know your children. You know your family. You know the goods, the pros and the cons. And you do not want to be found in a position where you're sure in your mind that you're okay with Christ, that you're saved. And God meets you and says, no. You see, what we need today, and we've always needed, is the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of some preacher's or author's imagination. Edwin Lutzer is a pastor, teacher, author, and recently a friend of mine just sent me his latest book. The title of the book is We Will Not Be Silenced. The subtitle is Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. The introduction to the book is given by Dr. David Jeremiah, and he writes these words. Lutzer asks, how do we live courageously in a culture where people who shout the loudest win the argument? 
How do we live during a time when Christianity is openly being, and I want you to hear these words because this is part of what this message is all about. How do we live during a time when Christianity is openly being remade to blend more comfortably in a secularized culture? Here is Lutzer's hopeful answer for you, for me, and for all who call upon the name of the Lord. I want to inspire us to have the courage to walk toward the fire and not run away from the flames. And here, Lutzer writes something that I have personally believed for quite some time of my own life, but I've given it to you as well, of your life. Lutzer writes, God has brought us to this cultural moment, and our future cannot be taken for granted. As has been said, quote, in a time of universal deception, Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And that's where we find ourselves right now. Telling the truth of what Jesus said, what the Bible says, seems to be not only an act of revolution, but it seems curiously out of place. And the reason is, is that we have been conditioned to think, to listen, to feel about a Jesus that's other than the Jesus of the Bible. And obviously, the only way we could find out about the Jesus, the real Jesus, is to read the Bible. And so I want to start today by looking at those two words of Luke 6:46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord? Why do you call him Lord? That's the title. Why do you call him Lord? But don't do what he says. Luke 6 is the same nearly identical message that was given on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. This one here is Jesus reiterating what he said in another place, and that's known as the Sermon on the Plain from Luke 6. But in Matthew chapter 7, at verse 21, it says this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many, listen to the word, many, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It's lawlessness. In verse 24 of Matthew 7, Jesus continues, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell. Great was the fall of it. The simplicity of his message here is, do what I tell you to do, then you have the right to call me your Lord. Listen to this question asked by the apostles in Luke chapter 13, at verse 23 through 28. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not 
be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, simplicity. Some years ago, Leonard Ravenhill, the evangelist, wrote a book, Sodom Had No Bible. Jesus will use Sodom and Gomorrah in comparison to some of the cities where he did most of his teaching or a good deal of his teaching and preaching and healing. And he said that Sodom and Gomorrah would rise up in judgment against you. And listen to this. And Jesus said, the works that I'm doing in your cities and in your presence had been done in Sodom. It would be standing to this day. Now think of the implications of Sodom or of Gomorrah. And that it would be standing to this day. And in the province of God and sovereignty of God, it isn't. But Jesus said, had I been there doing the works that I'm doing in your city, Sodom would still be around. Now listen, Sodom had no Bible, but America does. And as we pray, and again as many others pray, that God would visit us again. Revival, reformation, great awakening, something that God alone can do. And we ask God to do that. Because it is certain that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Reversing that, when the Lord is not the God of a nation, that nation is under not only a curse, but the eventuality of going down the route and path of so many other nations before it, which were taken captive or destroyed. America needs Jesus. Not an imaginary Jesus and not a cultural Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible. And in order to call him Lord... We must have a heart of obedience to do what he said to do, not in one instance or the other, not picking and choosing as though the Bible were a menu, but in all instances. Lutzer continues in his book, We Will Not Be Silenced with These Words. He says that Jesus affirmed that many who expected to be saved would in fact be lost, and the gate leading to the heavenly kingdom was narrow. The way to destruction was broad, and those who entered by it are many. Clearly, more people, many more people, will be lost than will be saved. Yet today, there are calls for evangelicals to remake Christianity into a more inclusive religion. There are widespread efforts to make the narrow door wider and to even affirm the salvation of well-meaning people of other religions. So-called progressive Christians advance their causes under the banner of love and compassion. In the process, the hard truths of Christianity are either redefined or ignored. And that's where we find ourselves at present. I have told you over the years that there are many, many things in the Bible that I don't care to think about, let alone to preach and teach about. But then again, I don't like many things in life pain and suffering and war and disease, but my aversion to these things does not change the fact that they exist. For instance, the doctrine of hell, which I'll touch on in just a moment. 
I'd rather ignore that subject altogether. But in order to be faithful to Christ, I have to preach the whole counsel of God, everything that he said. And in order for our nation or the world in general to have any hope, we have to give the gospel, the Bible, in all of its purity, letting God say what he said. Anything else is sin. So again, I would prefer not to even think, let alone speak and talk and preach about certain hard truths of the Bible, but they are still truth. Lord, are there few that be saved? And basically, Jesus says, yes. Many will attempt, and the idea here is that they will attempt to get into the kingdom of God in a way other than the way prescribed by Jesus, and therefore they will not be able. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 6, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name? And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? God responds. He says, you offer polluted bread upon my altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Again, God is saying, you say that I'm your father. We heard that during the prayer meeting. Our father, our father. And God is responding by saying, if I'm your father, then where's my honor? And how do we honor God? Well, two ways, of course, is individually, personally, when we're pretty much alone by ourselves. And then there's in the world. We honor the father in the world, in the workplace, uh, wherever we go. You'll find, and you have found, that the world is opposed to God. And you find that they reject you, as Jesus taught us, because they reject him. But, along with the theme and thought of Lutz's book, we must act courageously and stand for the truth no matter what. Remember the words of William Penn. Wrong is wrong even though everyone is for it. And right is right even though everyone is against it. If you ever find yourself in a position like I am right here behind a pulpit, you're going to find the greatest resistance you get to the truth are coming from people who say, we enjoy the truth. We love the truth. We love the Bible. Amen. But do you? I was astonished early on in my Christian walk to find out that the greatest contradiction to Christianity were professing Christians. And that the greatest attacks and insults and assaults that I've ever had in life, and I've known Thousands and thousands and how many thousands? I don't know, but it's a lot. But the greatest assault and insult and all of this came from professing Christians. And you know what? It's always been that way. And why? Because people call him Lord and Lord, but they don't do what he said to do. This is my commandment that you love one another. Meanwhile, we have all types of activities in the church that abrogate that commandment. And splits and factions and divisions and so on. Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? And by the way, when it comes to loving the brethren, as you know, he didn't say to love the ones that love you back. Because he said even the Pharisees do that. You know, criminals and gamblers and whoever else, they love their own. Jesus said, 
love one another. It also said love your enemies. That's even more difficult. Why do you call him Lord, but don't do what he said to do? Jesus said to pray. Many Christians don't pray. I've always been astonished when I talk to someone who's got decades in the Lord under their belt to find out they've never read the Bible through from beginning to end. How can that be? I hold pastors chiefly responsible for this because they didn't tell the people, you're supposed to be reading your Bible. No, let me change that. You're supposed to be reading the Bible, not your Bible. You're supposed to be reading it, and it is expected that what you read, you will pray about that you may obey it. Now we're on the right path, and now we can assure our hearts, sinful as we may be, as many faults as we have, that we're on the right road. Many years ago, I received a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now you know that when the phone rings at 2 and 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning, it's ordinarily not good news. My wife and I were just married, and I picked up the phone expecting some type of bad news about something from someone. But it wasn't. It was my boss. At the time, I was in radiology as an x-ray technician. I had just given my two weeks notice because I was going to take a job with the United States Postal Service because it was paying more money. We had children and so on. And so I was about to finish my time there. My boss called me up 3 o'clock in the morning. He was, right from the beginning, evidently extremely drunk. And he began to talk to me about how much he loved me and appreciated me and what I was to the department and all of this. I was always a good worker. I was always a conscientious worker. I like to go to work. It doesn't matter if I'm studying the Bible, preaching, teaching. I like to be just, you know, go to work. And he went on and he went on. Now, earlier I had handed this man a gospel track sometime in my tenure there at the hospital. And he didn't give it much of a response But in the course of time, I learned that his wife was a born-again believer. She was born again. So I said to him, I said, well, if that's the case, and certainly I didn't know that when I handed you this, this is my boss, I handed him a gospel track. I said, well, certainly I know that your wife is praying that you be saved. He was very passive about that. But now that I was leaving, he calls me up at 3 o'clock in the morning after he's three sheets or more to the wind and pouring out his heart. And that's what he said to me. And I want you to listen carefully. In the slurring tones and words that he used, he said, you know, I come here because this is my ministry. I remember it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And he began to explain how he comes to this bar. And he drinks with them and he quoted the scripture that Jesus was accused of eating and drinking with the drunken. That was an accusation. Jesus didn't get drunk. That's how he interpreted it, that he's just there for their benefit. You know, this is that self-righteousness thing. And he shared with me how he comes and he socializes and he mixes in, he drinks with them and all this stuff. And obviously, I learned one thing, by the way, in ministry over the years. You can't talk to someone who's drunk. You can't. No sense even getting involved in the conversation until they sober up. Anyway, I just kind of, well, I said, Mr. C, that's what we called him. I said, Mr. C, that's not the ministry of Jesus. And it reminded me of the story told by Dwight L. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, who had a drunk approach him. And again, with slurred speech, he approaches this world-famous evangelist, and he says, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, do you remember me? I'm one of your converts. To which Moody responded, he said, you must be one of my converts, because Jesus' converts don't turn out like this. The good news with Mr. C is that eventually he did come to the Lord. And some of my friends in the department as well, planting the seeds. But at that moment, he represented what 
I have seen far too much of in my four and a half decades as a preacher. Somebody making a claim, Lord, Lord. But when you examine or watch them, you see that their behavior betrays this, that they don't do what he said to do. That, my friend, is a dangerous place to be in and not one that you want. We in the church have so many problems today because instead of Jesus converting us, the church has converted Jesus. In the book of Genesis, we read and we know that God made us in his image. But in the course of time, man has now made God in his own image. It's the imaginary Jesus. In 2003, the renowned sociologist Alan Wolf, who teaches not that far from here in Boston College, or he did, he wrote this book entitled The Transformation of American Religion, How We Actually Live Our Faith. This man, by the way, is not a Christian. He's a secular Jew. But when I read the book, I agreed with what he was saying. Let me read you just a little bit. Wolf said, God is not dead in America, but the way he lives and breathes has nothing in common with the old-time religion dramatized in Inherit the Wind. In this groundbreaking work, leading American social scientist Alan Wolf demonstrates that American religion has been transformed beyond recognition. Now, this is 18 years ago, and I can assure you it's gone even further in the last 18 years. Listen to this. God has met and struggled fiercely against American culture, and the culture has won. On the face of it, religion in America seems to be booming. Church attendance remains high, and God talk is omnipresent. Yet, after traveling across the country, visiting with clergy, joining in worship services, and digesting reports from every corner of the land, Wolf discovered that the reality of religion as we actually practice it is utterly different from the stereotype. Gone is the language of sin and damnation. Forgotten are all the doctrinal differences that were once of burning importance. Worship and prayer serve the needs of the inner self. Witnessing is another lifestyle option. In short, American religion has been tamed. God has become a friend rather than an authority figure. By the way, we already understood that Jesus and God is our friend. Even conservative religion has become part of the culture of narcissism. Remember, this is the understanding and viewpoint of a secular Jew, to which I happen to agree with what he wrote. Evangelicals are more interested in planting and growing churches than they are in saving souls. People change denominations as frequently as they change jobs. Americans continue to take their religion seriously, but as a group, we have thoroughly domesticated what was once a matter of spiritual life and death. We are witnessing the end of religion as our grandparents understood it and the start of a new religion. We are just beginning to know. The transformation of American religion offers nothing less than a roadmap to our new national and I agree with him. I remember handing the book out to a few pastors, and they didn't think much of it. You see, you have to be anchored to the Bible. We have to have a confidence in the fidelity of what is written. Jesus said, it is written. And throughout the New Testament, the apostle Paul particularly would say, as it is written. Matthew has this all over his account of the gospel. According to the prophecy, as it is written. 
This is what we need, the Jesus that is the real Jesus. Now, there's a man by the name of Steve Patterson, and he has a, either a blog site or a website called Courageous Fatherhood, something like that. And he asked the question, do you hold the biblical view or do you hold the modern Jesus view? Which view is the Jesus you serve? He has this chart. It's very good. The biblical Jesus was born as God Almighty in the flesh in John 1, 1 through 14. The modern Jesus was a good teacher and a man or even born as a man and promoted to deity. The biblical Jesus loves us enough to speak the truth, offends the world with the truth in John 4, 1 through 38. The modern Jesus waters down words to avoid offense, hates to offend you, loves political correctness. The biblical Jesus points us toward eternal treasures in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. The modern Jesus promises us earthly treasures. The biblical Jesus warns of sin, judgment, and hell, Matthew 5, 29. The modern Jesus sends all to heaven and dismisses hell. The biblical Jesus commands repentance of sins in Matthew 4, 17. The modern Jesus minimizes need for repentance of sins. Biblical Jesus gives you salvation, hope, peace, and joy in many, many verses. John 15, 19 through 17 is one verse, group of verses. The modern Jesus gives you health, wealth, and happiness. Biblical Jesus hates sin, exposes the truth about sin. John 3, 16 to 21. The modern Jesus overlooks sin and never corrects you. The biblical Jesus commands with divine authority, Mark 5, 1 through 20. And the modern Jesus gives suggestions, not commandments. Biblical Jesus says to expect persecution in his name, Matthew 10, 22. Modern Jesus promises our best life now. Biblical Jesus brings division when necessary, Luke 12, 49 to 56. But the modern Jesus promotes unity and tolerance at all costs. Biblical Jesus exalts God the Father's will in John 6, 38. Modern Jesus serves your will above God's will. Biblical Jesus warns of false signs and wonders, magnifies God's word in Matthew 24, 24. The modern Jesus exalts signs, wonders, and mysticism above God's word. Biblical Jesus demands the emotion, experience, and opinion conform to sound teaching. Matthew 23, 1 to 39. While the modern Jesus exalts emotion, experience, and opinion above sound teaching. Biblical Jesus commands you to deny yourself, be willing to lay down your life for God. Matthew 16, 24. The modern Jesus encourages you to love yourself and gratify all your fleshly desires. Finally, he says, the biblical Jesus is hated and despised by the world in John 15, 18, whereas the modern Jesus is loved and accepted by the world. And this is not just hyperbolic expression of an opinion. This is the truth. This is what we have today. What is drawing so many people, for lack of a better term, to the church, to church services, is that they're hearing what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. Now, perhaps in your case, what you want to hear and need to hear are the same. That's how it is for me. I've often told people, without equivocation, this Bible, after almost 45 years of preaching it, if I really came to uh, an intelligent conclusion that it was not the truth, I would dismiss myself from it immediately. Tell all of you and those of you watching by television and those of you listening by radio that I made a big mistake. The truth of it is, for this preacher, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see 
that God wrote the Bible. And that upholds me, because I'll tell you the truth. I'd never be a Christian. If it were for the majority of Christians I've met, and especially the ones that did damage to my home, to my family, as well as myself. But Christ, I thank God for Christ, and I thank God the way he saved me. He made me, so he knows me. And I'm convinced more and more and more and more that Jesus is not a truth. He's not a way. He is the truth, and he is the way. That's it. I've told you over the years something that's just logical, if you read the Bible, that this cross behind me makes no sense at all. There's not a place called hell if it doesn't really exist. Further, it means that Jesus himself was wrong when he talked about it. Or we just had communion a few moments ago, and when he talked about, this is my body, it's broken for you, this is my blood, it's going to be a new covenant, New Testament... And so we see in the Bible the word saved, not reformed, saved from the wrath to come. If there is no hell, then Jesus himself was wrong. And so we read in the Bible these verses, Revelation 21, 8, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Same chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Revelation 20, 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Mark 9, 43, listen to this. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Here we see Jesus accenting the seriousness of breaking the commands and laws of God. Sin, that's what sin is. And he says it's so serious in a metaphoric and allegoric way. He says, and if thy hand offend thee, Cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Matthew 10, 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus, the real Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. Jude has only one chapter, verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Whether one likes it or dislikes it, whether one accepts it or does not accept it, that's what the Bible says. For me, I accept it. And again, I want to remind you, I don't take joy in talking about these type of subjects. I figured out a long, long time ago, there are subjects in the Bible that I could accent right to the grave and rally a crowd and get the cheers and the applause of the people and offend God. And I'm not going to do that. Moreover, as an American who loves his country, 
I will not be part of this disintegration, and that's a polite word, this cultural Marxism that has the veneer of doing it for racial justice. It's not about racial justice. Jesus is about racial justice. It's about bringing down this country to the same level of others that have gone before it, Russia and China and Venezuela and Cuba and North Korea. And I've come to see that this is demonic because intelligent people cannot simply buy into something that has failed across the board. Yes. Karl Marx is not the savior. Friedrich Engels or any of them. Mao Zedong and all these people. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the savior of the individual. Jesus is the savior of America. And we need him. And we need him now. We need him yesterday. We need him desperately. Oh, God, that he'd raise up preachers that would just simply stick to the text. And if they're not, at least be honest enough to tell people, I'm not really preaching the Bible. For many, Jesus is a way. Professing Christians I'm talking about. Only one group. Professing Christians. He's not the way. He's a way. But Jesus said in John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Yeah. Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And again, John 3, 36, I just read it to you. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, for an example of what we're dealing with today in the church, at least in America, well, it's all over the world, but in Harlem, there is a pastor who's taken over the First Corinthian Baptist Church, has 10,000 plus members there in New York City. He preached a message just a few years ago, 2018, and there was a little piece written about his message, and I'd like to just read you a little bit from it. It says this, in a sermon from two weeks ago, the pastor said there are multiple ways to get to God. Telling the congregation, if you are a person who believes in God, these words can apply to you, no matter what your faith background. Now remember, this is a man who says, I'm a Christian preacher, here's a Bible, and so on. We get so twisted in this country and in many cultures to create divides and boundaries and barriers between human beings because of our faith difference. <laughs> Let me just get a little commentary in here. Yeah. You see... In one sense, Jesus is inclusive. Anyone that believes on him, doesn't matter what your color is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter what your gender is, doesn't matter where you came from, where you were born, Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor. On the other hand, Jesus is exclusive. And I read you the verses. Then will they say to me, Lord, Lord, I did a great work in New York City. I never knew you. The preacher went on to say this, think about it. That we use the thing that we think makes us closer to God, the very thing to divide us from one another at times. And that makes no sense. So I'm not one of those people. He added, there was a time when you would see people in the pulpit say, well, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. And by the way, it's not the preacher that said it. It's Jesus that said it. He went on to say that's insanity in many ways. Insanity. That's insanity in many ways because that is not what Jesus even believes. So the key is you believe in God. And whatever your path is to God, I celebrate that. Personally, I celebrate that. Again, we have enough in this world that divides us. We need to find those things that bring us together. And if God cannot bring us closer together, then something is wrong. Not with God, but in how we think we know God and understand God. But preacher, I thought your obligation was to preach the gospel. To leave it unamended. 
unedited and undisturbed, unmolested. God gives severe warning in Deuteronomy. He said, don't add to the law and do not take away from it. And we see that repeated in Proverbs and then we see it repeated in the last chapter, the book of the Revelation. If any man add unto the prophecies of this book, I will add unto him the plagues that are written in it. And if any man take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, I will take away his name from the book of life. Who gave any preacher? I don't care where they go. I don't care who they are or how popular they may be. To amend the book, they did not write. If I amended and edited a book, a classic, let's say, I've gone with the wind, I don't know, Moby Dick, and really just went through all the parts I didn't like, I didn't like the way it was written, I want to change the name of the characters, what would the publisher do? The one that owns the copyright, at least. It would sue me. How in the world, intellectually, can people say, well, you know, I don't believe in that? If I went to my doctor, my cardiologist, and he said to me, I really don't believe in much study of the heart. I said, really? Nah, it's a matter of opinion. I wouldn't feel too comfortable because we expect doctors to practice medicine, not law, and we expect lawyers to practice law and not medicine, and we expect preachers to preach the gospel or at least be honest enough to say, what I'm saying is not what you're going to read in your Bible. We have come to a crossroads. Me, I've made up my mind. Going with Jesus all the way, the one written about here, right here. Quickly, a biography on this pastor. Pastor Mike has not only catalytically changed the traditional perspective of the black church, but is also shifting the paradigm of Christian understanding. No comment. No comment needed. Just a few weeks ago, family of feud host, and he's a self-professing Christian, Steve Harvey, went on YouTube where he denied that Jesus is the only way to heaven. A statistic says less than half of U.S. Christians expect to experience eternal salvation because of their confession of sin and acceptance of Christ as their Savior, while a larger number of professing Christians believe good works will get them into heaven, a new survey found. Where do these surveys come from? Rather, I should say, where do these opinions come from? It comes from the preacher. It comes from the preacher. While I worked in radiology, again, many years ago, I was a young Christian and I think I was as enthused about the Bible then as I am now. I told you, I, can re I read a lot of books. I really do. And some are really good. And sometimes I try to figure out what is the author trying to say. But I'm never confused by the Bible. I thank God for that. Anyway, as a young Christian, you listen to Christian radio all day long. And this guy, and this guy, and then that one, and this one, and you find all these, if you're intelligent, you find all these discrepancies, and you want to be edified, well, I was a young Christian, and I was getting terribly confused. And here on the table, I was going to do an x-ray on this uh, old gentleman. Somehow, we got on the subject, and he identified himself as a Christian, older man. And I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, I listened to Christian radio all day long. And I said, at the end of the day, I'm confused. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> he said, oh, it never confuses me. I'm waiting for this real gem of wisdom, the real secret. I was almost ready to take out a pen and paper. He says, I turn it off. And I'm thinking to myself, now why did I not think of that? <laughs> oh, I never let it confuse me. I just turn it off. It's time to turn off some of these preachers and tune in to the Bible and read about Jesus. Think of the blood, literally, that has been spilt so that you can have a written Bible in your hand. And I'm not only speaking about Jesus. I'm speaking about men who said the Bible must be into the hands of the people. And went against the clergy 
that did not want the Bible in the hands of the people. And why is that? Because once you know and can read for yourself what the Bible says, you could check up on me anytime you want. And I encourage you to do so. I encourage you. Check up on what Pastor Ray Barnett says. Look it up for yourself. Look it up. See, was I accurate? Was I correct? Did Jesus actually say that? Well, he did. So why do you call him Lord? And more importantly, when do you have the right to call him Lord? Let me just give you a few examples. There's many. But something, obviously, that was very close to Jesus' heart. When he was going away, and he said explicitly he was going away, he would return, but I'm going away for a season. He said, now, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Now, how many of you have been in a church where you had a lot of experiences in that church, but the only one you didn't experience was love? You come in, you've got problems, the church handed you even more problems. Somebody drew you aside and told you all the sins of the pastor, alleged sins and imaginary sins. I say this to you again, I repeat myself, the deepest disappointments I've ever experienced in my life came from people with Bibles in their hands. I went through a scenario just a few years ago with my best friend from high school. We're still best friends. He knows little to nothing about the Bible. And I was just pouring out my heart to him. And I was telling him the things that were going on. And he looked at me with this incredulous look. He said, why would they do that? I said, I don't know. And it's one thing to do wrong to a person without a Bible, but doing wrong to a person and justifying it with a Bible? Well, in my place, I am a leader. And I am going to do my duty no matter what the cost. Don't matter what the cost is. I'm going to do my duty. I don't care who likes it, dislikes it, hates it. Don't matter. As long as I know my conscience is clear. As long as I know I've examined the scriptures and there it is. I'm good. You know, I heard this and I think it was kind of cute. Somebody said, I forgot who said it. It's not your job to like me. That's my job. Well, we would amend that to say it's not your job to like me, but God loves me, I guess. We could put it that way, but I thought that was kind of cute. I don't want to like you. Really? <laughs> you see, as you grow in the Lord, the more mature you become, you've got to get used to not being liked. You've got to be used to what Moses, as one example, experienced when it was the very elders of the church that came up against him. You take too much upon yourself. You're a glory hound. All the people are holy. Moses simply said, tomorrow... We'll find out who's holy. And that was the end, not only of that, but of them. The earth opened up. They were swallowed, tents, gold, everything. Boom. That was the end of that. Because you see, Moses was appointed by God. Of course, the people were holy. God called them holy. But Moses had a unique job in the history of Israel, as did Joshua. As I read to you, I think, it last week. That's why he was commanded by the Lord, be strong and courageous because he's going to fill in some really big sandals here. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. It's not written, but, you know, behind his back, they've got to be saying, he's no Moses, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> he led us over here to Ai, if you remember the battle of Ai. And they were soundly defeated. And who did they blame? Joshua. Joshua went to the Lord, and he's on his face. And God says, what are you doing? Like, Get up off your face. And he's like, you said you were going to be with us. And then he talks about how the people had abridged and defied God's orders and so on. So the fault didn't lie with Joshua, and the fault didn't lie, of course, with God. The fault was right over here with the people, and not even all the people. And I'm saying to you, as you mature in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have a lot of opposition. Look, at I'm an experienced pastor, and experienced at being defied and maligned and what have you. And you get what some get in either law enforcement or combat veterans and so on. 
It's called stress inoculation. Battle-hardened. You start to learn that this is what war is. This is what it is. Whatever goes along with combat and all that goes along with combat, it is what it is. And by the way, just as an aside, did you know, during the Second World War, about 85% of soldiers never fired their gun? Yeah, that's true. And I remember hearing the exact same thing about the American Civil War, that most of the guns were never fired. And it wasn't because the powder was dry or they weren't loaded. They, for some reason, these soldiers, at times of combat, just don't fire their guns. Could be a lot of reasons, but I was reading about a Medal of Honor winner. And here he is, here they are, his unit, and they're under heavy attack by the Germans, Second World War. He's running around all over the place, running out of ammunition from his BAR, running out of ammunition from his uh, machine gun, Tommy gun, running out of grenades and all of these different things, and fellow soldiers in the same exact place in the building. This is a true story. Some were actually cooking spaghetti. And he's running past them, and I don't know that it was ever found out what in the world they were doing. In the church today, we probably have at least 85% of professing Christians that aren't doing anything at all for the kingdom, and some are cooking spaghetti when the enemy's right at the door. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news today. Our cities are being burned to the ground. It's not racial justice. It's anarchy and the criminalizing of a just cause by people who are not just. And so I came to this. Call him Lord. He said, this is a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Jesus is the king of racial justice, of all justice. Love one another. I wonder how God's heart must grieve. I know how my heart is grieved that my family, when they were younger, didn't get along with each other. I've never liked to hear stories of families that don't get along with each other. And I know it happens a lot. I talk to people all the time. Who's not talking to who? Who don't get along with who? And when your own family, your father, your mother, your own family doesn't get along, it's grievous to the parent. So we come again, this prayer was uttered, Our Father. And I wonder if God as Father is not saying, you grieve my heart, you don't even get along with each other. And all the scriptures I've given to you about resolving conflict in Matthew chapter 18, that's a great one. If you have aught, you have something against your brother, go to your brother. And I'm telling you, for four and a half decades of being a pastor, that is rare. So rare, it's rarer than a four-leaf clover. Try looking for some. Very rare to find them. Someone who says, Jesus said, go to your brother. Before you go to the altar, before you go to the pulpit, before you pick up an instrument, get it right, get it straight. We don't. I think our grievance is there. Come on, let's praise the Lord. Yeah, right. Okay. It's not working. It's not working. And evil will spread more and more and more until we apply the antidote, which is Jesus. Jesus. Love the brethren. Until you arrive at a position where you actually hate sin. And I mean your sin, not somebody else's. Your sin. You don't really love the Lord. I hate when I sin against God. I really do. But Lord, you know what? I'm determined to overcome this flesh of mine. I'm determined to overcome fears and anxieties and depressions and bitterness and all these things. Hate it. But how many professing Christians wear it as a badge of honor? Take it off. It's not a badge of honor. I'll tell you what is a badge of honor. Acting courageously and bravely in this present evil world. That's a badge of honor. If we're opposed by people who hate this Jesus of the Bible, wear it as a badge of honor. Knowing that that's how they treated the prophets that were before you. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how they treated. And who treated them that way was the people that were called by God's name. They killed the prophets. They persecuted the prophets. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Oh, Lord, here's this and here's that and I'll do this and I'll do that. And complete disobedience to what he actually said to do. Do both, not one or the other. Do both. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Now, why do you call him Lord? Is it possible, Bible in hand, prayer on the lips, that you have the right ticket, but you're on the wrong train? I want to read something to you in my conclusion. This is taken from a website of a travel agent, but it provides a tremendous illustration, in my view, of what we read earlier by Jesus saying, I never knew you. But Lord, I had a Bible. I read the Bible. I went to church services. I gave tithes. I gave offerings. Those things are to be done, by the way. But first is the heart towards God. And again, if you like everything that God says, you are really unique. Because I don't like everything God says. And I don't like everything that he says. You're going to do this. And I said, no, let me pray about it. <laughs> Who are you going to pray to? God was the one who said, do it. So where can we go? I want you to listen to this. This is a man giving travel advice to others. I want to say Americans, but don't have to be Americans, that are going to Europe. Listen to this. His name is Ricky Steve. He wrote this. I do not plan on getting on the wrong train, but what happens if you do? Are the ticket masters flexible? If tourists make mistakes and end up on the wrong train, do you get fined? Do you have to buy new tickets? Can't hop on the next train that comes through the opposite way because it could be going anywhere, correct? Remember, this is a travel agent. To avoid getting on the wrong train, simply confirm your destination with a conductor before boarding. Conductors usually stand on the platform before trains depart <clears throat> and during stops. Just ask, for example, Rome, and point to the train. Rome, even if they don't speak English, still understand your question and will let you know if it's the right train. The best way to minimize your chance of a fine is to immediately find the conductor and bring your error to their attention. If they speak English, they'll probably explain what you need to do to get to your correct destination. Depending on circumstances, for example, on a train that requires reservations, you may incur an extra charge, but probably won't be fined. If the conductor discovers the error, then your chances of a fine increase. Now here's this. Remember, this is a travel agent. Bottom line is that getting on the wrong train is your mistake. Thinks about I'm in Europe. I don't speak Italian. You got on the wrong train. And in every age, God has his men and his women that have still not defied the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bottom line is that getting on the wrong train is your mistake, and you'll incur the cost of any changes. The type of ticket you hold will determine whether you can exchange it at full or partial value, or whether you'll need to buy new tickets. But we only go through life once. So you want to confirm your destination, you want to make sure you're on the right train with the right ticket. How do you do that? You open your Bible this afternoon. If you're taking notes, as some of you do, look up the scriptures I gave you. You see, I'm not afraid to be found out. I'm not afraid for you to check up on me. I'm not afraid to ask, answer, all, I say, almost any question. Because someone said, well, how much money do you have in the bank? My answer will probably be tens of millions. It's none of your business. But if you find a pastor, you've been in a church where they will not answer a question, they avoid it, go. I will not avoid your questions about the Bible. I'm very honest about myself. And if you get on the wrong train with a Bible in your hand, which is the right ticket, you are responsible. Because far too many have the right ticket. I love Jesus, they say, but you're on the wrong train. 
And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. As we go to prayer and finish the service today, out of a clear conscience and out of a pure heart, and I'm not looking for you to respond yes, yes, and amen and all that. You do that between you and God. I'm simply asking, can you go before God today with a clear conscience? And can you go before God today with a pure heart and say, I rightly call you Lord because I do the things that you say. Let's go before the Lord. Father, only you know the hearts of men. We can guess. And we look for evidence and other things. But you're the final arbiter. You're the final judge. I'm not. But I do pray, Lord, as we had this time of prayer earlier. And I do believe you're hearing our prayers. Let the change that we're looking for in America begin right here, right here. Those that are watching on the television, let it begin right there, wherever they are, in Uganda, Nigeria, Pakistan, India, right there, right in the car, right in the home. Begin that work right now, God. Spare us from what we see coming and is already on us. Help us, God, to be inoculated to the stress of living for Christ and to be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, to stand on the battlefield where we are told, for the battle is not yours, but it's the Lord's. God, help every single one of us to not deter or be deterred from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, God, as we pray, believing we are receiving and thanking you. Father God, today in Jesus' mighty name, I pray everyone who has heard this message will have both the right ticket and the right train. Oh God, we thank you and we bless you. For truly you are great and greatly to be praised. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's go forward courageously, boldly. And as we go, let's remember all this week to love God with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all the strength, and to love one another. So, Father, we thank you for these things. Bless you, praise you, touch your church, and make it whole. All this we pray today, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, Amen. 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 And amen.